So the 845 crowd knew that we are uh, preempted on WSFA, so they challenged you all to take the rod and to try it during the worship service. So who, who's ready? You ready? You think it would work? I, I don't know that it would either. What a great message about uh, power through the hands of people when we join our hands together. There's more to be said about that from today's reading. Uh, I encourage you to find the Pew Bible that's in front of you or perhaps a Bible you brought with you or uh, maybe on your phone or your tablet uh, and turn to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. We're going to read the first 18 verses. I invite you to listen for the word of the Lord. Now the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized Peter, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? So Peter began to explain it to them step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw the four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice say to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time the voice answered from heaven, What God has made clean you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me. And we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as it fell upon us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could hinder God? And when they heard this, they were silenced. And then they praised God, saying, Then God has given, even to the Gentiles, the repentance that leads to life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The story continues to be a top contender for an ESPY award, but it's not part of a, an NBA playoff game or a Major League Baseball game or the new USFL League, not part of one of those games. The story happened just a few days ago at Churchill Downs. A colleague of ours, Reverend Sarah Shaver, shared a post about it. It goes like this. Last year, a two-year-old Colt finished dead last in his first race. Disappointed, his owners placed him in a claiming race where anyone can take ownership of a horse for a fee. An older man claims the colt after missing his chance to claim a, another horse that he actually wanted. He says it was his last attempt to find some success in horse racing. And so the colt wins by 17 lengths and his new owner is encouraged, but in the races that follow, he finished third twice, fourth once, fifth once, 
but his owner still believes in him. This year, 2022, is the Colts' only chance to race in a major thoroughbred race, which are limited to three-year-olds. And the day before the Kentucky Derby, the field of horses is already full. But then at the last moment, a trainer scratches, withdraws his horse. The colt takes his place in the field of 20 horses just 30 seconds before the deadline entry. He's in the game. He has a chance. But all the metrics and all the predictors are stacked against him. Neither his owner, his trainer, or jockey have ever been affiliated with the Kentucky Derby. His jockey has never even won a major event. They are outsiders and newbies to this elite arena. And so on the morning of the race, the odds are 80 to one, the second longest odds in Derby history. Halfway around the track, the Colt is 16 horses back from the lead. He can't even be seen from the field of view uh, by the drone that is hovering above the track. He's a nobody, a throwaway, an inconsequential participant. But then he makes his move. He begins working his way through the crowded pack, finding uh, narrow, fleeting opportunities, and he heads toward the finish line. He's moved into fifth, he's moved into fourth, and still no one notices him, no one mentions him. Everyone's focused on the popular one or two or three horses. Only seconds, seconds before the finish, he suddenly, magically goes left and then weaves right and passes the two front runners. And the announcers, you've heard it by now, they struggle to identify who this horse is. So in a single breath, they say, Rich Strike is coming up on the inside. Oh my goodness, the longest shot has won the Derby. The longest shot. The most unlikely horse that bites other horses, <laughs> as we witness, had so much more bite than everyone thought. But it all happened because the horse has an owner willing to take a shot, a trainer willing to go the extra mile, and a jockey willing to empower the horse to do more than anyone thought possible. It's very Trinitarian, really, an owner, a trainer, and a jockey, right? <laughs> By the way, if um, you had Rich Strike down to win the Derby, there's a pledge card for you in your Purex right now. <laughs> I just want you to know that. The good news of Christ about which we read in the Gospels and in Acts, Luke writes, Luke Acts, a two-part uh, gospel there, is this, God believes in long shots. God believes in the people who are overlooked. God believes in the ones who place third and fourth and 17th. God empowers those on whom people give up and gifts those same people who are overlooked and undervalued and even outsiders as our text indicates today. There are no boundaries for whom the Spirit can find. It's our tendency to believe that only certain people have the right stuff to qualify for the race, much less find their way into the arena, much less get into the actual race or place or win it. God says otherwise. In fact, it's the cross and the tomb that placed Jesus dead last. But the power of resurrection that propelled him forward. Victory against all odds. And it's that same power of resurrection that God sent to the church and blessed the church. He 
called up some ordinary and uneducated men, as Scripture tells us, to be his little band of brothers and, and sisters through whom the church would be born. And now the scope of that mission is widening. The odds remain stacked against the mission of Christ based on this hodgepodge of people selected to carry it out. But the owner took a shot on them. The trainer prepared them despite all else. And the jockey said, let's do this together. It's as if God is saying, if I can raise my son from the dead, just imagine what I can do through other people in this world whom the world says are outcasts and have no place. Just imagine. How will the church respond to what God is trying to do through people on the outside? Through the most unlikely of sorts. Through those who are at the back of the pack working their way forward. In this reading today, from chapter 11 of Acts, the church is at a crossroads. It's really a congested intersection. Will it follow the Great Commission by taking the good news to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? Or will it try to keep the Holy Spirit contained? I believe the church has always been asked to live in this the tension. This, those who are in the covenant, the wideness of God's love, where those boundary lines are, where does that circle, where does that circle begin and where does it end? Maybe there's coming a day when we feast at Christ's heavenly banquet when there's not a circle at all, just people. Our default mode, you see, is to pick a side, to draw that line, to stand on either side of it. Jesus' default is to take the hand of that side and of that side and to show us the power that's available that lights up and to say, let's take a step forward together. That's the power of resurrection. A few weeks ago, Reverend Walters preached a very poignant service, uh, sermon in our chapel service on Wednesday night, 5.30, and she was talking about the importance of questions in our lives and the importance of questions in Scripture and how so much about what happens in the biblical narrative happens around questions, great questions. Who, Lord, should I say is sending me? And we get the divine name, Yahweh, right? Um, whom shall I send? Here am I, send me. So I've been thinking about Peter in the story of Acts, and I've been thinking about a question that Jesus asked all of the disciples in Matthew chapter 16, it's recorded at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Do you remember that question? Who do people say that I am? And some of the disciples said, well, you know, some say Elijah, some say John, some say this person or that person. Peter replied, you are the Messiah, the son of what kind of God? The living God. The living God. And on that declaration, Christ began building his church. So I've been thinking about that, a living God. <coughs> living things grow and regenerate, and they bloom, 
and this time of year they produce pollen, and eventually they will bear fruit. You are the living God. As if to say, where God is, there is growth, there is fruit, and there is always a way forward through the chaos of life. I want to say that part again. Where the living God is present, there's always a way forward together. In today's reading, Peter has a dream. It's, it's a vision where another question is posed. Why did you go to those uncircumcised people and eat with them? The, what they're really asking is, why did you go to, to them? You know, there's an us and them line. Why did you go over there? Why did you go where those are unclean, outside the bounds of covenant? You know that's a no-no. You know it's against everything that we've been trained and inherited from our people. And it's interesting because if you read the chapters prior to chapter 11, uh, Peter has heard about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, the, the Ethiopian uh, who converted to Christianity. Uh, just prior to this text, Philip, uh, Peter rather, has actually converted a Roman centurion. That means a pagan. A pagan, right, has converted and his whole house was baptized. And within that same text, Peter says, God shows no partiality. He's preaching to the Gentiles. And so we get to this moment right here because the Gentiles have received this word that the Holy Spirit is for them too. The outsiders, right? Outside the covenant. And because they received that word, they started speaking in tongues. And Peter baptized them and their whole households. And there was a great revival in that moment. And so Peter did what any preacher has to do. He had to report all this to his charge conference. So he had to go back to Jerusalem. You're not going to believe the number of baptisms and converts and new members that we have recorded because the tally, I need to tell you, is comprised of all the wrong people. It's Gentiles. They eat the wrong foods. They use the different language. They're not like us. They're not one of us. To which Peter says, and when I saw it happen, who was I that could stand in the Holy Spirit's way? Verse 18 says, when all those in, at the Jerusalem council heard this, they were silenced. I bet they were. I bet we would be too. Peter's landed himself in a very strange place He's landed himself between the story of his people and the promised future through the Holy Spirit. He stands right between the past and the unknown. And to be clear, the dispute in this story is not about menu items or dietary practices. It's about people. It's about how the people of God decide who's in and who's out and who's clean and who's unclean and who's worthy and and who's unworthy, the boundary lines have, have, have been drawn, but they're not drawn arbitrarily. This is an actual line between the covenantal people, between existence and non-existence, between the story of a people who are and the story of a people who will be, to which I think sends a message, another message from the cross when Jesus says, I want all people to be part of God's family. And I'm the gateway through that. 
They're not mutually exclusive. He's taking the hands of both and saying, let's take a step forward. And so Peter is standing in this gap, in this space, in this moment, praying for a word from the living God about whom he testified to make a way where there is no way, to overcome the 80 to 1 odds, to do something revolutionary. So the living God does just that through a vision about food. Some of you are having a vision about food right now, too. A vision about food, a vision about no more labels, just grace for all. But no more labels. It's about holding on to the past and to the future because they do not mutually exclude one another. That is the moment that's happening here. Uh, Willie Jennings, uh, professor at Duke, reminds us that in this moment, Peter has no playbook for this. There's no scriptural text that he can go to to say, here's how you, you do this. Here's how the covenant's going to widen to the Gentile people. The prophets, they didn't have anything to say about it. They were more interested with the covenantal people. So he's standing in this gap alone. Peter must lay his body across the line between the circumcised and the uncircumcised, between the insiders and the outsiders, and Peter must somehow become a bridge, a suture kit to mend the wounds that existed to those who were so divided those whom God chose and those whom God was choosing. It's the same God and the same call and the same spirit and presence and the same people who would let God lead them. So in this moment of utter vulnerability with no formality, with no pretense, he didn't stand in a robe and a stole with a microphone. Peter just stood there and said, I don't know how to explain it. I just know that he called me from a seashore and he told me he would build his church on me, and I abandoned him, and I betrayed him, and by grace alone, he let me back into the story. I denied him three times, and then he came to me three times and said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And the same vision in Acts 11 happens three times. It's like Luke's way of punctuating this. This is significant. The power of the Holy Spirit knows no bounds. It comes for all people. It's, it's, it's not about food. It's not about shrimp or catfish or ducks that feed on the bottom, no matter how deeply fried or doused in one special sauce they are, which is really good news because if you saw the insert, conveniently, we're having catfish Wednesday, right? So thanks be to God. This is about God's children having access to the one who takes a shot on us, no matter how often the world tells us to get to the back of the pack. God says, you're my child, come forward. No more labels, no more boundaries. There's a Lutheran pastor out of Virginia, David Yosis, who says this about this text and about the grace at work uh, throughout uh, the lives of the early disciples. He said, the good news is that we are saved by God's grace through faith, right? For by grace you're saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We are saved by God's grace through faith, not by God's grace in eating the right foods, not by God's grace in having relationships all figured out, not by God's grace in wearing the right clothes to church, not by God's grace in 
how many programs we offer, not by God's grace and portfolios, not by grace and intellect, not by grace and fooling everyone that life is perfect and we are so humbly blessed, not by grace and all the emotional masks that we wear, not by grace and lofty expectations, uh, not by grace with or without pre-existing conditions, but grace through faith, period. If we need to be a certain kind of person and comply with a certain cultural expectation to fit in with a certain type of people in order to receive grace, then guess what? It's not grace. Grace is either offered to us as we are, where we are, and even despite who we are, or it's not grace at all. For the church in the first century and the church in the 21st century, we are called to be channels of that grace. God chooses the church to bless and to heal and to redeem the world. And there is no plan B. It's just us. And we need to be honest because sometimes it's, it's hard to believe that God loves certain people just the way they are. Thomas Merton says, love all people without stopping to ask if, if they deserve it or not. And sometimes it's hard to believe that God can love certain people just the way they are. We all have that family member or that friend or that co-worker who's, who's difficult to love. It's difficult to see them as a child of God. And if you do not have that person in your life, then it might be you. I, <laughs> it can also be nearly impossible to believe that we are loved just as we are. Those of you who have been in class with me know that I, I like to share Billy Graham's response when he was asked, you know, who's in, who's out? How's God going to sort all this out at the end? Billy Graham very directly said, it's God's job to judge. It's Jesus' job to save. It's the Spirit's job to convict. It's my job to love. Amen? Someone once said, anytime we draw lines between who we are, you know, the good over here and the bad over there, chances are Jesus is going to be standing on the other side of our line. I don't know if that's true, but there's that tension again. There's that tension again. The Jesus way means that something has to die in order to be resurrected. So I wonder if we can just stop with all the labels and all the markers and all the division, and we can just grab the hand of the one next to us, the one that's just like us, the one who's different from us, the one that goes to a different school, the one that goes to a different denomination, the one that goes to a different, whatever the difference is, and we just say, can we just all be children of God? And when we do, I think that little thing will light up and make a noise, and we'll know we're doing it right. Because see, we're not set apart as the people of God to draw lines, we're set apart to set tables because grace makes space in this world. James and Mabs are going to come and sing our response to the word. What I'd like for you to do is just maybe just take your hands and place them in some kind of prayerful position because I want to offer you three questions to think about as we head into, head into this week. The theme is disciples include... Who is God placing on your heart as someone who needs to know that the church is not whole without her or without him? The second question is, who has been left out 
and overlooked and forgotten and estranged, maybe even harmed by the church, and they need someone to say, there's a place for you at this table. There's a place for you at my pew. There's a place for you in my life. And then thirdly, on whom has label after label been placed by society, and it's just time for someone to say, come as you are, just as you are, because grace makes space and is available for you. Let that be our prayer as James and Mabs come to sing.